Romans chapter 11, and we'll be focusing our attention on verse 25 and following this morning, just to bring you up the date. So we're, we've been going through this wonderful book of Paul's explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it provides us a right relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the power of God to save people. When he got to chapter 9 and all the way through chapter 11, he's addressing the issue of God's dealings with the Jews and the Gentiles. It's been a constant thing throughout the book that there's this Jewish objector that he uh, shares questions that they would raise based on what he's been saying. And all along it has seemed to the Jewish contingent within the church or outside of the church that Paul was essentially saying that God has put, you know, put Israel aside, that he's done with them, permanently uh, done with them. He's had it, and so he's dealing with the Gentiles. And Paul is taking great pains to say that that's not the case. And in chapter 9, he, he showed that you know, salvation is always by divine sovereign election, God's choice of who he will show mercy to and who, whom he will harden. And that was true within the, the nation of Israel, and that was true with the Gentiles. And then in chapter 10, he really highlighted the other side of the coin, and that is that people are absolutely responsible before God to believe the gospel. If you don't believe, you are not saved. You, are, you remain in your state of being condemned by God for your sin. But when he started chapter 11, he's getting very specific about... Uh, the, the Jewish question because, again, it is seeming, seeming to the Jewish contingent that he's, he's really saying it over and over again. It's like, God's done with, with the Jewish people. That's, how can you say that, Paul? Has the word of God failed? Doesn't God keep his promises? Et cetera, et cetera. And, and so he started out in the first 10 verses of chapter 11. We looked at last week. And, and that was to say that Israel's rejection by God, which was due to their rejection of the gospel in Christ, was only partial. It's always only been partial. And he, he uses himself as an example. He, he says, look, look at me. I'm an Israelite. I'm a, of the seed of Abraham. And, and, and I was the great persecutor of, of the church, and yet God saved me. God has made me right with him. Besides that, he says, look in the Old Testament which the Jews would have loved to have done. Look at the Old Testament. Go back to the days of Elijah when Elijah you know, cried out to God, I'm the only one left. It's just me and you, God. Everyone else has you know, abandoned you. And, and God had said to Elijah, Nope, you're wrong there, bud. I've got 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's always been a remnant of believers within the nation of Israel, always. Even, Paul says, in those verses, right down to the present day. And that's still true today. There's been a remnant of, of uh, Jewish people who have been believers in the gospel. And that's what he says in those first ten verses. And then he had said that Jewish, or Israel's rejection was also very purposeful from God's point of view. It was, first of all, to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Their rejection of the gospel is what led to the apostles taking the gospel out to the Gentiles. And God wanted that. God had always wanted Gentiles to be saved. It was part of the, the covenant that he made with Abraham. Through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. And, and so he says it, it, uh, that purpose, to, to get the gospel out to the Gentiles. Secondly, it was to make Israel jealous. God working with the children, or the, 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 the nations, the Gentiles, the, the Greeks, uh, was intended by God to spark something in the Jewish people. It's like, we want, we want what God's doing with the Gentiles. We want to be right with God too. And so it was very purposeful. And he uses an illustration, kind of a lengthy one, a horticultural illustration in verses 11 through 24 and, and he says that Israel is like a olive tree and the roots of the olive tree the patriarchs Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and so on they were holy 
but as the tree grew up, not everything remained holy, and God had lopped off some of the branches, meaning people, Jewish people. He had lopped off some of the branches, but what he had done is he had grafted in branches from a wild olive tree. That was the Gentiles. So God was doing a work still with the Jews and primarily with the Gentiles at that time. And then he warned the Gentiles. And he says, hey, listen, don't get arrogant about this. God lopped off some branches so that you could be grafted in, but God is just as able to graft, uh, lop you off if you get arrogant and think, you know, you're all that in God's sight. And he can graft Jewish people right back in. And that's what he ended with in that illustration with a warning to uh, the Gentile believers. Don't get arrogant about this. And, and now in verse 25 through 32, he's going to, going to give a fuller explanation of God's further work among the Jewish people. And basically what he's going to say is that Israel's rejection was only temporary. So it was partial, verses 1 through 10. It was purposeful, verses 11 through 24. And it is temporary in verses 25 through 32. So let's read those verses, and we'll just briefly chat about them and go on into, into the last few verses of the chapter. So, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant of this mystery, brothers. It's talking to the Gentile believers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they, that would be the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So, their rejection by God was partial, and he says that right in the, these verses I just read. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, and it is temporary until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. So he explains that he doesn't want the Gentile believers in the church that are in Rome to be ignorant about God's working among the Jews and the Gentiles. Again, let me read that. I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant, unknowing of this mystery. It's a word that Paul refers to several times in his epistles. This mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So God's working to bring Jews and Gentiles alike into one people group. Uh, to his glory, was a mystery hidden in the Old Testament, but that mystery has been revealed through the preaching of the apostles and the, and the truth of the gospel. Now, you might think, well, Spencer, did, didn't you say it was revealed in the Old Testament that God wanted Gentiles to be saved? Absolutely. Well, how then can Paul say it was hidden? It was a mystery hidden you know, in times past. What he means is this. It was always clear in the Old Testament, and the Jews should have understood it, that God wanted Gentiles to be right with him. But it was hidden in the Old Testament that he wanted Jews and Gentiles to be one people group. That he would bring them into one body, into one family, into one kingdom, his kingdom, and they would all be the same. Paul would say, put it this way elsewhere, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free, between you know, men and women. He says the gospel brings everyone to the same place and into relationship with God. 
So that was a mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the gospel, he says. And likewise included in that glorious mystery was hidden the fact that a partial and temporary hardening of the Jews would take place until, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now, what does that mean, the fullness of the Gentiles? What is that a reference to? Well, it's a reference to the time that God ordained for the gospel's primary impact among the nations to reach its completion and the number of Gentiles chosen by God's mercy to be saved. You know, we read about this also in Luke chapter 21, where Christ is speaking about uh, Israel and their rejection of them. He's coming into Jerusalem, and he says in verse 20, uh, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are out in the country enter it, and for these days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And then verse 24, he says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that phrase, times of the Gentile. So what is that time? Well, it is ever since the resurrection of Christ to his second coming to gather up those who are in Christ, those who are dead and those who are alive, and they will rise up into the air and be with the Lord forever. And after that, there will be seven years of tribulation and God will once again turn his primary focus back onto his people. You can read all about it. You know that phrase. Read all about it. Read all about God's primary focus being turned back to the Jewish people in the book of Revelation, chapter 5 and following, particularly chapter 6 and following. You won't read about the church at all in the rest of Revelation. Focus gets turned once again back onto the Jewish people. And what Paul is indicating is that during that time, there will be many, many Jews, that time when his attention is focused once again on Israel, many Jews, a large percentage of them, will finally believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they'll put their faith in him and be saved. And it talks about from every tribe there will be people that will come. There will be lots of Jewish people that will turn and believe during the time of tribulation. And that's what he says at the end of that. All Israel will be saved. Now, that doesn't mean that every Jew at that time will be saved. Rather, in contrast, uh, the, it, it is a contrast between the remnant that exists now, in this present time, during the times of the Gentiles, and that large percentage of the nation that will be saved when they turn to faith in Christ during the tribulation. That's what he means by all Israel will be saved, a large number. You can, you can kind of read about that in Ezekiel, where it says that God will gather all Israel together and, and bring them under judgment. Now, he's going to do that, Matthew 25 says, There'll be the judgment of the sheep and goat nations, but there'll be a special judgment for the nation of Israel. And according to Ezekiel, God, God's going to bring them all together and he's going to separate the believing from the unbelieving and welcome all the believing into the kingdom as he will do for all Gentiles who are living and believing during the tribulation as well. So that's my understanding. The deliverer will come from Zion and... He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and he will take away their sins. So that is the second coming of Christ to the earth, seven years after he's raptured or taken out the church, brought us up into his presence in heaven. He'll come to this earth. There'll be a great earthquake when he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives. There'll be all kinds of geographical changes during that time. Anyway, he will come and he will deliver Zion. And there'll be the Battle of Armageddon. You're probably familiar with some of that language. Great war will take place, all being focused on Israel. But he will 
banish ungodliness from Jacob and he will take away their sins. So what is he saying? He's saying Israel's rejection was partial, purposeful, and temporary. You know, it is in this discussion of Israel's future salvation comes one of the most encouraging statements in all of Scripture. It's where he ends that in verse 20. Uh, and he says, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. How beautiful are those words, eh? For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now, in context, that's talking about his gifts and calling to Israel, that he will save all Israel. But that's... A true statement of God anyway. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He is trustworthy. Another way of saying that could be that God is not an Indian giver. God is not an Indian giver. Uh, and, God, and that might not even be appropriate in this weird woke culture for me to say that. But let me, let me say, God will never take away what he's promised by covenant to Israel or the church, Right? You liken that to the United States government that made covenants and treaties with the Indian nations as the West was being won and so on. And when it was in the best interest of the U.S. government, they broke those treaties. They broke those covenants that they made with them. So an Indian giver doesn't refer to an Indian who takes away or breaks a covenant. It referred to the... U.S. government that broke their covenants and treaties. God is not an Indian giver. He's not one who breaks his calling, his gifts. They are irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God. What a beautiful word, irrevocable. So that word actually has the meaning of kind of being sorry or regretting something that you've made a decision about. That's the root idea behind that word. So since God is never sorry about his choosing of people, his calling of people, his forgiveness of people, the gift of eternal life that he gives to people that he's chosen in his, his divine sovereign election, it will never be revoked. The gifts and calling of God are sure. I was thinking about how our driver's licenses can be revoked. And they can be taken away if get me points from tickets and take your license away get a DUI take your license away and as in high school I got in an accident after being at a party and being drunk and getting in an accident they took my driver's license away I didn't have it anymore didn't have it for a period of time it can be taken away we can have our insurance taken away car insurance taken away if we get in too many accidents uh, we're declining your policy. you no longer have that covenant with us we can, we can have lots of different things in our lives that we kind of think are pretty secure, taken away. A covenant of marriage is often broken, isn't it? That's taken away. There's many things like that. And yet God's covenants, God's promises will never be taken away. It will never be revoked or canceled or in any way removed because... The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Praise the Lord, eh? Praise the Lord. God's dealing with the Jews and Gentiles alike should give us great confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God as in Christ Jesus our Lord. One final point to make, and it is this, that God is not mean, but merciful. A lot of people think of divine sovereign election. They somehow see a mean God in that. Like, he didn't choose everyone. What's with that? That just seems mean. No, he's not mean. He's merciful. All of his sovereign actions in dealing with the Jews and Gentiles alike point to his mercy, not to any vindictiveness on his part. Think. First, mercy to us. Mercy to us who are undeserving to be partakers of salvation. And that's every person, isn't it? We're born sinners and we are deserving of God's condemnation, not his salvation. Second is mercy to Israel, whom he has not completely or finally rejected, even though they had rejected his son, the Christ. 
And so as Paul concludes, God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now what does he mean by that? Well, all are consigned to disobedience because they are sinners and they deserve his wrath. But God is gracious and merciful to those that he has chosen. He, and he shows mercy to any, any who will repent and put their faith in Christ. Mercy to all doesn't mean to every single person. It means to those that he's chosen who then have believed and they receive his merciful forgiveness. Amen. So the question, really the question at the end of that section is, have you believed? Have you repented and believed? I would hope every one of us here has, but I don't know that. This would be a, a call to you to repent and believe if you have not. If you have, rejoice that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Well, that brings us to the last few verses of this great section. It actually brings us to the last few verses of the theological description of the gospel and what it brings about. When we hit chapter 12, as we will next week, we start the practical side of how God's great salvation given to us should impact us in our daily walk. This last section is, is it's a doxology. How many of you have heard that word? Okay, probably everyone. How many of you are sure you know what that word means? So doxa is a Greek word for glory. So a doxology, and the last part of that doxology, ology comes from the word logos. It's a word or a statement. So a doxology is a statement or word of praise or glory given to God. And that is what this is. So let's read these verses, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. It, it, this is like Paul coming to the 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 pinnacle of the mountain of God's salvation. He's, he's standing on the top, overlooking all, all the valleys, all the details that he has given us. Kind of like if you climb a mountain. I, I've, been, I've been all over this state. My wife will frequently remind me how many places I've been in the state, and she hasn't. So, you know, I've been all over the state. No matter where I go, I'm like, oh, this place is amazing. This place is awesome. This I love this state. It's so beautiful. My wife and I often talk about how every time we've ever driven down uh, the Turnigan Arm or down to Seward or Kenai or Soldotin or Homer or whatever, it, it actually comes out of our mouth. This is awesome. God is awesome. The beauty that he's created, right? I'm sure you're much like that. Even the beauty of the snow. Yeah, right. It's beautiful. It is. It's really pretty, fluffy and all that. It's not very much fun to move around, but it really is quite beautiful. And we get to see it for so very long. So, you know, it's kind of exciting. But it, it, I, I remember a time that I climbed uh, to the saddle, which is just below O'Malley Peak. I did so with my girls. And I, I was not in very good shape. And they were, they were like, you know, a coyote or a goat going up that, that hill to the saddle. And I was huffing and puffing. And finally made it up to the saddle. It was a beautiful, gorgeous day. And we looked out over, over Anchorage. And just was, it was breathtaking. First of all, literally, it was breathtaking. <laughs> and uh, but metaphorically, it was breathtaking as well. It was just so beautiful. And that's what I picture when I read this doxology that Paul's climbed to the saddle or to the mountain peak and he's overlooking the valleys of what he's taught. What has he taught? He's, he's taught that, you know, 
God looks at people and sees that they're all condemned sinners and deserve his holy wrath, his justice to fall on them. However, God has made a way for people to be right with him, to be come into a right relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, to be justified by him and have peace with God through him. And then, and then he, he, he looks at another valley and he sees there how God broke the power of sin over our lives. He took away its penalty and its power from us. And, and then he, he thought, and, and oh, God has taken away the shame and guilt that we were singing about earlier. He took that away as well through the cross of Christ. And, and then he marvels at the Holy Spirit coming into the lives of those who put their faith in Christ and how he changes them from the inside out and puts within them an ability that they never had before, and that was to live a life that brings glory and honor to God. And then, then he kind of ended, you know, that with that section as in that valley, just celebrating God's sovereign work in the lives of people where he, he calls them and justifies them and ultimately glorifies them because of their faith in Christ. And consequently, nothing can ever separate them from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And then... He's also looked at God's wonderful working with all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. How salvation is his work and his work alone by his sovereign choice, but how God was gracious enough to draw people to repentance and to faith. And they must exercise that faith to be saved. And he's just kind of, he's just awestruck by it. It's breathtaking to him, this beautiful salvation that he has described. And it, it's like he just can't, he just can't keep himself from crying out to God in a statement of praise to the glory of God. And what he says, first of all, in, this, in these last verses, is that God has such great depth. So if you're filling in your insert there, that's the first one. He has such great depth. You remember the faddish statement some years ago? Oh, that is so deep. Or you might say about a, about a person. Oh, he's so deep. She's so deep. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that you would say about deep philosophical topics or persons. For me, it, it became somewhat of a filler statement that I might use if I was having a conversation with someone and I didn't understand what they were saying. Oh, that's deep. That's deep. Well, Paul begins his declaration of praise by essentially saying that God is so deep. He has such great depth. And the depth of God that Paul describes is in relation to three specific things. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, some English translations, particularly some of the older ones, uh, uh, make it appear as though Paul is referring to the depth of God's riches in two areas, wisdom and knowledge. And it could be translated that way, but a better translation is, as many of the modern translations have, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge. Three things. Now, the reason I say that, even though grammatically either could be correct, the three questions that he quotes from the Old Testament, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given uh, to God that he should be repaid, uh, that's three. Now, he lays them out in reverse order in those verses. It's, it's what's called a chiastic structure. There's riches, wisdom, and knowledge, A, B, C. And then the questions come out in reverse order, and it goes C, B, A. And you'll see that as we talk through that, that... Uh, there are three things that God is deep in, riches and wisdom and knowledge. But pause for a second with me and just think about the word depth. It comes from the Greek word bathos. 
course, we get the English word bath from that. But we also get a word bathosphere, right? A bathosphere, which is an instrument for diving down deep, going hundreds of feet deep, where you're getting fed oxygen and there's pressure that neutralizes all of that stuff that you know, would cause bends if, when you come up too quickly and that kind of thing. So that word uh, sometimes expresses the idea of distance, depth being distance. And so this idea maybe that we, like we had four kids that we taught to swim and we'd take them to the swimming pool and first time you'd go, you know, they'd be terrified to get in the water. And I'm not going in the deep end. I mean, it might even be, I'm not going in. Throw them in, get them, get them in there. But no, the deep end was terrifying to them. Why? Because the distance between the surface of the water and the bottom of the pool. I've experienced that kind of fear when I've been swimming, snorkeling in Hawaii, and you know I'm in 10 feet of water, and then that, you look at the, the land underneath, and it just dives off to blackness and get over 50 feet of water, and I'm like, oh, 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 you know, get me back in, get me back in a little bit, because I, I can swim and I can hold my own, but not, the depth, it, it kind of frightening. So if this is the idea, uh, oh, by the way, think of fishing in Alaska. A lot of people like to go on halibut fishing trips, right? Deep sea fishing for cod or halibut or snapper, that kind of thing. You're often fishing, in the depths of two, three hundred feet, it's a great joy to bring up a you know piece of plywood uh, from that depth, which is what a halibut's kind of like, you know, as it's coming up flat and you're yanking on it. Anyway, that's fishing in the depth, the distance from the surface to where the fish is is quite deep. So if that's the idea that Paul's speaking of when he mentions the depth of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, his meaning is that there's no bottom to it. There's no end to it. It's, it's like a treasure chest that has no bottom. God's riches, his wisdom, and his knowledge knows no end, which means that there's plenty enough for everyone. Plenty for everyone who will believe. But there is another meaning to that word depth, and that is the idea of completeness or fullness or the greatness of something. So we might, for example, describe a certain athletic team as having great depth. In fact, I've been listening to sport radio the last couple of weeks. I've been talking nonstop about the Super Bowl that's taking place today between Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. And and one of the things I've kept hearing over and over and over again is the thought that I think Philadelphia is going to win because they have more depth on both the offensive and defensive side of the ball. Yeah, but what about, what about no, they have, they have more depth. They're, they're a more complete team that way is the idea. Or you might even refer to a particular player in a sport that has great depth. And what we, you mean by that? He's got, a, he's got all the skills. You know, he's, he's got all the skills required in that sport and it gives him great depth that other players don't have. So if that's the idea that Paul's expressing when he talks about God's riches and wisdom and knowledge that are so great, so, they're so great, they're so full, they're so complete that they are beyond comparison. Well, that's true. I think both are true. God's riches and wisdom and knowledge has no end. Never, never will run out. And it is better and more than any other riches and wisdom and knowledge. Secondly, he says that God is greater than we can even imagine. He's greater than we can imagine. He puts it in these terms. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. So Paul speak, is speaking of the judicial judgments of God, uh, of how God declares the guilty sinner not guilty, how he declares the ungodly godly by faith in Jesus Christ. So he's referring to the ways of God which has worked out his marvelous salvation plan for the lost. 
He's, he's musing on the judgments and the ways that he's working out his eternal plan of salvation so that Jews and Gentiles could be put together in one body of believers, one family who could bring glory to God. And so he says, you know, it's, his judgments are unsearchable, unsearchable. And that word was originally used with respect to animals, animals who would track their prey by sniffing, right? You bring out the hound dogs to track down the fox or the prison people might bring out the dogs to track down an escaped prisoner by scent. And that is how that word was originally used. In the, in the human fear, it was referring to examination or searching out something uh, you know, searching for some object in a home, like the woman in Luke 10 who lost the coin and searched through her house to find that coin. Uh, it, it referred to doing an investigative in examination for a judicial hearing. It was used in legal settings. And also, it specifically related to scientific and philosophical and religious investigations. You search the scriptures because in them you think there's eternal life. So in the Bible, it was used of a careful search and examination of the scriptures to reveal the truth. It, in Second Peter, it says that the prophets in the Old Testament searched the scriptures to see if they could figure out the time when the Messiah would come. Therefore, try what Paul is saying, and try as we might to search for all the answers to all of our questions about God's judicial, judicial judgments, we'll never be able to figure out all his judgments. We've seen that when we talk about divine sovereign election. Try to figure that out, how that goes with human responsibility. People goes like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because God's judgments are unsearchable. The word inscrutable, inscrutable his ways, refers to something being impossible to understand, even after a careful examination or investigation. So some aspects of God's judgments and ways and working out salvation with the result that he could be both just and the justifier, as he said in Romans 3, both just and the justifier of the ungodly to those who have faith in Christ. That's undetectable to us. How does that work? How can Jesus be both God and man at the same time? How can there be one God but three persons in the Trinity? There's a whole lot of God's ways being inscrutable to us. So the visual picture that Paul is drawing is that try as as, as people will, they will never completely understand God's judgments and ways in salvation or in his providential affairs over, the, you know, over mankind because he does not leave enough of a trail to be sniffed out by humans. You know, read uh, Psalm 77:19. It says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Well, how many of you have ever walked through the sea? I'm not talking about walking into the sea, through the sea. Uh, no one. Or his path through the great waters. Anyone? Anyone? No, not happening. But God can walk there. But even if you could get out there and walk through it, you wouldn't find any of his foot tracks. You couldn't find them. That's what he's saying. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my, ways are, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Amen. Yeah. It is, is, his ways are inscrutable to us. So what we see here is the first thing that Paul does in this beautiful doxology is to praise God, right? Praise God for the depth of his riches and his wisdom and his knowledge. And the second thing that he does is to say that God's grace and judgments, his ways in working out of salvation for sinners, and even God himself is beyond our full comprehension. And then the third thing that he does is to 
add three questions that emphasize the depth of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. And the first of those questions is this, who has known the mind of the Lord? Again, that's a quote from the Old Testament. But this shows that God is so knowledgeable that no one will understand him completely. God is so knowledgeable that no one can understand him completely. Now, we've talked about the fact that God is omniscient, that he knows all things, past, present, and future, the actual as well as even the possible. He knows the end from the beginning, the scripture says. And because that's true, and since it's equally true that each of us knows yeah, just a little bit less than that, we should never think that God somehow must fit into our small box of theological understanding. Our, our knowledge and understanding is very limited. If we could, you know, let me give you a visual idea of that. So take all of humanity's knowledge, every bit of it, throughout time, and we bring it into this room, it would fit in this chair right here, this one chair. That's all of man's knowledge throughout time. It's right there. And then you take God's knowledge, and you'd have to go out of this room. You'd have to go into a football stadium that sits 50,000 people, and even that wouldn't be enough. All those seats combined wouldn't be enough to show the difference between God's knowledge and our knowledge. That's what he's saying. And so we should never think that God must somehow fit into our little box. Our, our understanding is like a drop of water when compared to the oceans full of God's knowledge. And Psalm 147 puts it this way. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. <laughs> it's like, did you get that? You can't put a measuring stick to God's knowledge. There's not a tape measure long enough to measure it. Isaiah 40 and verse 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is, there's this word again, unsearchable. Unsearchable. But in contrast, we know very little and we understand even less. And so we see Paul saying that God is so knowledgeable that no one can completely understand him. Are you good with that? I'm good with that. <laughs> That's called humility to recognize that. God is great. We are not. So the second question that Paul asks, who has been his counselor, makes it clear that God is so wise, he never needs a counselor. It's his wisdom. Reverse order in the questions, right? Knowledge, now wisdom. God is so wise, he never needs a counselor. And if there is a distinction that is to be made between wisdom and knowledge, it may be something like this. Knowledge refers to God's perception and understanding of all things. He knows it all. He understands it all. While wisdom refers to God's arrangement and adaptation of all things to be used for its best purposes. So one author put it this way. Wisdom directs all things to the best end. Knowledge knows that end and the issue. In other words, how to get there. God knows, and he understands all things. That's his knowledge. And he also works all things for his glory and our benefit, our good. That's wisdom. So, if God is so wise, he never needs a counselor. It kind of means that he didn't need anyone's help in figuring out how he could work out his riches of grace and mercy to reach lost people. Nor does God ever need someone to give him counsel on how to work out the very best plan for your life. Uh, he doesn't need counsel on that. God has never gone to anyone to ask for wisdom for anything, right? Now, we are told to to look for wisdom, to seek it out. Go to God. James 1 says, if you lack wisdom, go to God. He gives it. God never needs to go to anyone for wisdom. Now, I think, too, we've all known people that we would consider to be wise, but they've not always been wise. We recognize that, right? There was a time when they lacked wisdom, and even though they have had a, may have had a great deal of knowledge, they lacked wisdom. 
So you, you take the young man or woman who goes through college and then graduate school, comes out of graduate school, and it, it, it seems like they have so many facts stored up in their brains, it's as though knowledge gets in the way of wisdom. Knowledge gets in the way of it. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before, he was educated beyond his intelligence. And that refers to an abundance of knowledge, but not enough wisdom to put it, that knowledge into good use. So people may have known a great deal, you know, but they haven't experienced much in life, and consequently they are lacking wisdom. They have knowledge, but not wisdom. And so they must seek wisdom from those who have experience in life. And so they go to a counselor, and that doesn't, I'm not talking about a certified you know, licensed counselor. I'm talking about someone wise. They go to someone who is wise because they've experienced a lot in life. Kind of comes with age to some degree. But on the other hand, there's God. He's never needed a counselor for he's always been all wise. He's never needed advice from anyone concerning anything. And so I don't know about you, but I conclude that we should never assume the role of counselor with God. Have you ever tried it? Tried to give God counsel on something? I think probably most of us have. And sometimes we look at a situation that we're going through and we think that we know the way that God should work it out. And so we begin to tell him how he should work it out. But we're wise enough to know that we just don't say, God, this is the way you have to do it. So what do we do? We go to him in prayer. And we tell them how to do it. It's just like, that's not really being too wise. Uh, I encourage you to be careful about uh, playing the role of counselor to God. For as the book of Job shows, God rebukes those who presume too much wisdom in face of the all-wise. We read there, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God speaking to Job. Who do you think you are? Dark, darkening counsel with words without knowledge. And then he sarcastically says to him, Hey, Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and Job got the point. You get that at the end of the book? He says, I repent. I spoke once. I, I should shut my mouth now and just listen to you. God says, that's right, Job. Now you got the point. And, and so he understood that God was so wise that he didn't need Job's counsel. And we should realize that too. The third question, Paul asks us, who's given to God that it might be repaid? Uh, you know, I give God a gift and God owes me something. That's the idea of that. And that, that corresponds to God's riches, that A, B, C, C, B, his riches. And it makes the point that God is so rich, is never a debtor. God is so rich, he's never a debtor. Now, what are these riches? Ah, this is the riches of the judicial judgments of God. This isn't riches of material wealth. This is the riches of his grace and mercy and God saving us as well as his mercies that are new to us every morning, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says. Not the fact that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills or is the creator and owner of everything. It's not material riches that he's contemplating, but the abundance of God's compassion and mercy and grace towards sinful people who have rebelled against him. And so the point Paul's making is that no person can ever put God in a position where the Lord owes them anything, let alone salvation. So, hopefully you would agree with this. It's the height of folly. height of folly for people to think that by their works, by their good behavior, by their law-keeping, that God owes them the gift of eternal life. Pastor Thomas talking about that earlier. God is never a debtor to any man. No person ever first gives to God by way of good works that God must give back to them the promise of eternal life. 
It's only because of the grace and mercy of God that it is in a treasure chest that has no bottom that people are ever saved. And it's all the more important that those of us who are the children of God, who have placed our faith in Christ and, and been made right with God through that, that, that we avoid having an attitude that we think that we can put God in debt to us by our good works. And say, well, who would do that? Lots of people do that. Lots of Christians do that. God, look at what I've been doing. I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. You know, I'm a hard worker. I provide for my family. I'm, you know, I go to church and I'm involved in, you know, in things. And, and then when a crisis hits, a trial hits, a hard time hits, and we think, God, that's not right. That's not right. I don't deserve this. I'm a good guy. You owe me. Now, we might not ever say that, but that's the attitude that we can have when we begin to question and gripe and complain about what God is bringing into our lives? Isn't that an expression of, God, you're not treating me right? You're not treating me fairly? You're not treating me as I deserve? Wait, if you want what God deserves, what you deserve, then look out. Because you deserve wrath for your sin. It's a misunderstanding of the nature of God that results in a Christian having the mindset that God owes them something. It is as Paul said to the Corinthians, these words, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? That's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. So the moment that we begin to think that God owes us, you know, that it's a matter of repayment, for our good behavior, we've taken the position that we've earned something from God, and when we do that, we nullify the grace of God. And so we should understand from this question that God is so rich, He is never a debtor. He is never a debtor. But God is the center of everything. That's how this beautiful doxology ends. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. I wonder how many people in society believe that. Uh, not many anymore. Maybe the better question is how many of us really believe that God is the source and sustainer and goal of all things. And that's what this phrase is saying. That he is the source, the sustainer, and the goal of all things. You know, students of history really have realized that no society can survive very well for any period of time without some unifying system of thought. And even though our society, the United States, is kind of a melting pot of different people and, and job ideas and values, there has to be some kind of glue that holds it together is, is kind of what people have always believed. And many people have believed that our nation's belief in God is what holds us together. You know, but that's actually pretty far from the truth, especially in our day and age. What we really find is that the, quote, unifying theme of, of our culture is humanism. You say, what is humanism? Well, it, first of all, it's not the same as humanitarianism. Humanism is the belief that man is the measure of all things, that, that uh, he is the ultimate being and the ultimate authority and all reality and truth. You hear it a lot, my truth, right? And that reality and truth and life center upon man. And what that means is that our culture is anthropocentric, big, long term, easy to understand when you break it down, centric, Center, anthro comes from the Greek word anthropos, for the word for man. So anthropocentric, our society, is man-centered. By the way, far too many churches are man-centered today rather than theocentric, which is being God-centered. So the glue that should hold a society together is, is God. But our view of humanism is tearing apart our culture. Wouldn't you agree? Our culture is being torn apart. Because what really happens in humanism is that every single individual becomes a god unto themselves. 
and they oftentimes conflict with one another. So the center of my life is me, and you get in my way, I'm going to let you have it. And that's our society. So what we really find then is that we need to be God-centered, and that's what Paul says at the very conclusion of this doxology, that we should be theocentric, for God is the source from him, the sustainer through him, and the goal to him of all things. And this is true, but our society doesn't recognize it. But those of us who know Christ, we should. And we should live like we believe that. It's kind of like if God's not the center of your life experience, we become like a wheel that is unbalanced. I don't know if you've ever had an unbalanced tire on your car. And you're driving on that road and it's shaking. It's like, what's going on? And if someone were behind you, they'd tell you what's going on. Your tire's going like this. It's out of center, right? It's unbalanced. And so, you know, what happens is you can drive that way for a while, but then if you get in bad condition, it can cause an accident because you're, you're really out of center. And your tires will wear down and wear out quicker when they're out of balance as well. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe we should check out the tires of our lives. Just see if we're out of balance because we're not God-centered. But if we've tasted of the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God and that he is the very center of our life because we recognize him as the source of our salvation, the, the sustainer of our salvation, and the, the goal or end of our salvation, then we will find ourselves with one, 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 one purpose in life. To God be the glory forever. Amen. That's how he ends the doxology. But let me point out to you the last thing on your insert there, God. He is to be glorified by his people. So that last statement, to God be the glory forever, is first of all a statement of fact. Everything will be to the glory of God in the end. Because God will make it so, right? It's a statement of fact. But it should also be a statement of purpose. A purpose for us who have been saved from eternal condemnation. We should recognize that the driving purpose in our life should be to bring glory to God. And that can be done in two ways. First of all, by our lips. By our lips. We should be saying on a regular basis, to God be the glory forever. Amen. God keeps you from getting in an accident when you ran through that red light and just missed that car. To God be the glory forever. Uh, when... When, you know, you have a great day at work. To God be the glory forever. When your wife gives you a hug and says, I love you, to God be the glory forever. When your kids are doing well and, and uh, growing up and, and, and they're picking up your faith, to God be the glory forever. It ought to be coming out of our lips all the time. To God be the glory forever. But it also should be coming out of our lives, right? It should go beyond speaking, and we should be living life to the glory of God. That's where Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we're going to go next week, comes into play, where he says that we should you know, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. It's, it's our spiritual service of worship, and we shouldn't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of mind that we can prove what the will of God is, which is always good and, and acceptable and perfect. We should not allow ourselves to be controlled by the world putting pressure on us, but rather be controlled by the transformation that God is producing in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So matter, no matter what circumstances we face, we should give glory to God. <laughs> Paul put it so simply at the, at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whatever you do, whether it's eating or drinking. And I was in the context of temple worship and all of that kind of stuff, but let's put it, those are mundane things, right? Eating, drinking, driving to work. 
how you talk to, you know, someone on the street. I mean, just mundane, everyday life things. He says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So for me, the way I conclude would be to say, because the all-knowing and all-wise God has bent my need in the riches of his mercy, I will seek to do all to his glory. Hopefully you can say that too. Paul was so enthralled with the, the salvation of God, he couldn't help but declare the glory of God. And so, you know, we should, we should declare it as well, and we should live like we believe that he is all things to us. And if we truly do believe those things, then we will say it with our lips and with our lives. Yeah, put it in the words that Paul put it in. To God be the glory forever. Amen. Lord, we are thankful for your salvation. We give you praise. We do so because you are awesome. You are awesome. Thank you, too, for the, the food that you're, we're going to go eat together, the meal that you've provided. And as we sit around those tables and talk, may we talk to the glory of God. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.